Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based psychotherapists and mothers on this body-positive parenting journey with you, here to help you help your children fully bloom. A quick reminder that this podcast is for general information and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 63. This week, like all the others this season, we are tackling body-positive parenting in real-life questions. And today, are featuring a question from a listener who wants help filtering social media with respect to herself and her daughter. This is a question this parent has been thinking about on her own for a while, wondering if following lots of intuitive eating and non-diet social media accounts is useful, or as she asks, is it more supportive of my goal for body neutrality to focus my attention on topics that have nothing to do with food, body's weight at all? A very relatable question, and I must confess I was quite jealous that I, this is Zoe speaking, that I wasn't present for the actual conversation with our guest. Leslie conducted the interview with Kelly Deals, a feminist educator, writer, and coach while I was out on maternity leave. But I just listened to the interview and feel so inspired and hopeful, actually, about our own capacity and our children's capacity to be the culture makers and sort of be the voices that our world so desperately needs to hear. I will note, because I think it's important to mention that Leslie and Kelly spoke in early May of this year. This is a pre-recorded conversation, and their conversation happened a few weeks before the killing of George Floyd and all the community activism that's been percolating since then. So it felt important to acknowledge that just because their conversation does hit on a lot of uh, areas of social justice and acknowledges the need for marginalized voices to be heard. But for context, uh, please know that this was recorded in early May. I hope you find it as valuable as I did. Enjoy. Kelly, welcome to the Full Bloom Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. We are very excited to introduce our listeners to you. So can you tell us a bit about who you are and the work that you do? Sure. Well, my name is Kelly Deals. I am a feminist marketing consultant and a writer. I am obsessed with women and power and how we make culture. And I help feminist entrepreneurs, in particular, sell to women without selling them out. Want to describe that a little bit more? It feels juicy. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of the normal marketing tactics, the normal way that we are marketed to and sold to, relies on making us feel ashamed of ourselves, making us feel like there's something in us that's broken or inadequate or needs to be fixed and then holding up 
something that will ameliorate that shame or that pain. And to me, what I want to do, because I am interested in women and power and of us being our most fullest uninhibited selves in the world, I don't want to manufacture an injury or cause an injury to you in order to get you to buy my stuff or to get you to buy my client's stuff. So what I want to do is define the strategies and tactics for growing your business making sales and marketing in a way that doesn't cause damage to women. Yeah. So the reason why we really wanted to talk with you is because we've been getting a lot of questions from our listeners about how to help their children understand marketing and kind of this general way that marketing and advertising how it happens, especially on social media lately for them, we're, we're looking for an expert, you, to help us answer this question, which is how do we help our kids filter their social media so that they're really not consuming so much information that is so rooted in, in diet culture and fat phobia and weight stigma and oppression. We, we wanted to pick your brain about that. And hear what you have to say. So interestingly enough, I don't filter my children's media or even put a whole lot of restrictions on what they can or cannot consume. So I have four children. They are, well, I have five children. One is uh, my bonus stepson who is an adult and out in the world. So obviously I don't influence his media terribly much anymore, (laughs) but I have a 16 year old daughter, a 13 year old daughter, an eight year old son and a four year old son. So five children in total, four of whom live at home. And I am not the kind of parent who puts a lot of restrictions on what they can and cannot consume. However, my social media strategy or my media consumption strategy is actually about what we're doing in the home. So what I mean is this, my daughters in particular have somehow, well, by design, become, <laughs> have become immune to diet culture. They are so in love with their bodies. They have never dieted. They completely reject all of those messages And they are fully like in themselves. They don't think there's anything wrong with themselves. They're fully in their self-expression, which is fundamentally radically different than how I was when I was 14, 15, 16 years old. The exact polar opposite of how I lived my teen years. And they read magazines just as I read, read magazines. They're on social media. I didn't have social media. You know, like they are probably getting more media than I do. Mm-hmm. But what has happened in my home is I am a feminist. I have raised my children from a feminist perspective. I have always critiqued messages. They have not seen me diet. Mm-hmm. They have not seen me self-abuse. They have not seen me say bad things about my body or my presentation. That has just never happened. And so what they grew up with, they grew up with a mother who is not modeling for them those kinds of injuries. And so it doesn't even occur to them to do it to themselves. That's not to say that they're not hearing those messages other places, but they didn't get that first injury in our home. Mm -hmm. And so really, if we want to raise children who are free, we have to do the work to be free ourselves and model that for them. They absorb that. And we have to always be talking to them. And that doesn't mean like if you've had challenges around body image or you've had challenges around food or eating disorders that, okay, 
game over, you've ruined your children. That is 100% not, not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is the strongest source of information in their lives is actually you. And so if you can model to them that that message we just saw on TV, that was really messed up and that's really harmful to women. And actually, like, as soon as you raise that to the level of consciousness, you break the spell that that message could have had over them. So we continually break the spell by talking about things and punching holes in those messages and then modeling for them like extravagant self-love and healing. And even the healing that's coming with recovery, it's good for them to see recovery. It's good for them to see you growing. Those are really valuable things to learn from their parents. So we're not the only influence in their lives, but we are initially the most powerful ones. And so I just want to make sure that if we want to immunize them from those negative messages, that we do that by not creating the first injury in the home. So I I think of it like infection. If my children don't have the injury, then the bacteria and the germs can't get in to infect them. Yeah. The most protective we can be. Right. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's how I've done that in my home. And so now my children, my daughters in particular, they're not hungry for messages around how to fix themselves or what's wrong with themselves or skinny, bendy people. Like they're just not hungry for those images. Mm -hmm. What they are hungry for is women and gender nonconforming people saying smart things about the world. Yes. Yes. And that's the stuff they go follow on YouTube. That's the things they follow on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And are they aware of that at this point, that that's what they're hungry for? Yeah, we have these Mm -hmm. conversations all the time. My Mm -hmm. children are like intersectional feminists, Mm -hmm. and I'm so amazed by them Mm -hmm. because they know things at 13 and 16 and can have these really fluent conversations about anti-oppression that... I was only moving into because I was in second year, you know, political science Mm -hmm. and like interacting with it in an informal setting. Mm -hmm. So like they organically have a social and political analysis at 13 and 16 that I didn't have until I was in my twenties and Mm thirties. And so they are explicitly aware and are seeking out those influences in their life, but it's because we've always been having those conversations. Yeah, I love what you said, you know, they're they're not looking for advertising's not really working for them because they don't have the injury, so they're not looking for fixing it. Right. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit more about how you name that for your clients and how you help them get out from underdoing that in their own brands? Well, I mean I name a phenomena, like a marketing narrative or a marketing strategy that we are all sort of conditioned to perform as women. And that I call that the female lifestyle empowerment brand. And so we are conditioned to perform perfect femininity and perfect womanhood. And if we perform that thing, then in our personal lives and in our work lives, we will get the rewards. So first we have to be pretty. Second, we have to be thin. (laughs) You know, we have to be smiling, agreeable, likable, and we have to be the exception to what all other women are. And so we have to perform that thing. And that thing is white supremacist. That thing is heteronormative. You know, that thing is hostile to every other body out there in the world. Mm -hmm. But if we can perform that thing and be nice and likable and smiling, then we 
are allowed to have some success. And we are the aspirational figures that every other woman wants to be. So that's actually, if we look on Instagram, how women who have personal brands are even marketing themselves to us. We see images of their flawless lives, of their flawless skin, of their long hair, of their wealth, of all of these things. And we think then that we can have that life by buying their programs and doing the things that they've done. But really, that position is only available to other people who are white, thin, young, heterosexual, middle class, you know, all of those markers of privilege. So what I do is talk about that. If we raise something that's unconscious and invisible to the level of consciousness and visibility, then we break the spell. If you explicitly name the elephant in the room, then the elephant is now visible to everyone in the room. Mm -hmm. So if we name that this marketing narrative, and we call it empowerment, if we name that this marketing narrative is actually destructive to women and exclusive, like it literally excludes most women, then it doesn't work on us anymore. And then we can look at our own media if we are business owners and say, okay, you know what? I didn't even realize that I was performing that. I didn't even realize that I was only showing the highlight reel or that I was always having to show up as pretty and perfect and nice and smiling and likable. I didn't even realize I was doing that because that's my feminine conditioning in this culture. And now that I realize I was doing that, and that was actually building power over other women and actually creating sources of shame for those women. Now I can do it differently. Now I can make sure that the Instagram feed that I'm constructing for my business shows many different kinds of bodies, not just one kind of body. Now I can make sure to talk about the full range of feelings that women feel, not just the smiling high vibe positivity vibes, right? Like we can actually start showing up as whole women in our own marketing and we can show the whole breadth of humanity in our whole, in our marketing and still have flourishing businesses. And that is culture making because it interrupts that negative oppressive norm that we're otherwise building that says you can only be this. And this is the only kind of woman that deserves visibility. Yeah. I love, um, you know, I was listening to an interview that you did with Christy Harrison maybe about a year ago now, and you were saying something about we are the culture makers, you know, and our, our daughters are the culture makers, our children are, you know, by, by posting something on social media, you are making culture, and how instead of feeling helpless or hopeless against this big culture that is so oppressive to women's bodies, we can create it. Um, and I just wanted to hear more. I wanted you to talk more. I wanted our, our listeners to hear more about how we are the culture makers, how we can teach our kids that they are as well and that they can make it, make it work for them. Right. So there was a time where media was made by magazine editors in New York and media was made by you know, Hollywood film studios in Los Angeles, you know, and media was made by professionals in corporations and books were published by publishing houses. And what we consumed came from those machines, right? The messages and the images we consumed came from those machines. They weren't made by like ordinary people, right? They were made by experts who created media, but now because of social media, we are actually all media makers. If I post something to Facebook or Instagram, 
I am a culture maker. I just made media. I wrote something. I posted an image. I shared an image. I contributed towards our culture. I am now influencing what other people think and believe and feel. And I can either do that to reinforce the negative messages we already got about women, or I can do that in a way that creates new possibilities for women. But I don't even have to have a business to do that. Everyone who has a Facebook account is a culture maker and a media maker. And that's the other thing I want to stress about the culture making piece is when we're talking about social conditioning and when we're talking about cultural conditioning, we think of this monolithic culture out there Mm -hmm. that is happening to us, that is doing harmful things to us. And that is true, except that if we all disappeared tomorrow, so would our culture. Culture is made by humans. It flows through humans. And yes, we're born into it but it can't continue to exist unless it flows through our bodies and through our mouths and through the things that we contribute out into the world. And so we get to be deliberate about that. We can just let the culture flow through us and not interrupt it, right? We can be vessels for that unjust culture, you know, or we can be deliberate culture makers and decide what culture we want to co-create and put out into the world. And I want us to be deliberate about it and understand the enormous power we have. This is why media companies love social media so much or why big brands love social media so much. Because if individual people share a message, we're more likely to be influenced by it because we trust our friends than if a big brand said it. So that is the same thing that is true about social norms. Mm -hmm. We as individuals actually influence each other profoundly, profoundly. You don't have to have a blue tick by your name to be influential in your world. And so that's what I want us to think about. You are a culture maker and you get to decide whether the culture just flows through you or whether you deliberately decide what's going to flow out of you. Yeah, that's very powerful. It makes me think about, okay, as a, as a parent, how do I parent with that in mind? How do I influence my children so that they can grasp that. I just watch, especially with some of my clients, I just watch them getting kind of sucked in, you know, and I also have had a lot of people, especially during this time of coronavirus, be very influenced by the media around the need to change their body, their body changing, the fear of their body changing during this time. And just, just wondering your thoughts on both of those things. Well, that is definitely happening. Those messages are going out. And then if we amplify them, we're reinforcing the message that women's bodies are unacceptable, that fat is unacceptable, that thin bodies are better, right? So that's what we're choosing to amplify when we amplify those messages. Mm -hmm. And so that's not the only message out there. There is definitely a large stream of people putting out messages counter to that, saying, you know what? Your body changes throughout your lifetime. And that has nothing to do with your moral worth in this universe. And there are people putting those messages out. So we can go and amplify deliberately those messages. We can signal boost those messages. We can share those blog posts. We can retweet those memes. We can decide to put different messages out. And that is actually what changes the culture. And there is research that says, if you want to, let's say there's a hundred people in a room and they have a different idea than you. How you change people's minds in that room is by flipping 25% of the room. 
So if you can change 25% of the people's room in that mind, the whole room will change their mind. So you don't have to convince all 100 people. You have to convince 25 people. And then that block, that minority will actually flip the norm. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to convince everybody in your life. You just have to try and aim to convince 25% of people. Mm -hmm. And how you do that is by sharing those messages. Mm -hmm. So I read a book called Shrill by Lindy West. Mm -hmm. And in Shrill, I love Lindy West. Mm -hmm. In Shrill, she talks about how when she first started writing for The Stranger, which was probably in the early 2000s, it's a, a independent newspaper in Seattle. When she st first started writing for The Stranger, she it was really, really fat phobic. She would get a lot of fat phobic comments. She even got fat phobia from her boss at the time was Dan Savage, who has since changed his mind about all of these things. But it was really in her face. She got a ton of pushback. And then she went to work at Jezebel and still got a ton of pushback. However, in the five to seven years from starting out with, you know, her pro body acceptance, fat acceptance message, the world has shifted and now it is becoming less and less acceptable to be sizist or fat phobic. And you can expect to get pushback if you put those messages out in the world. So something has changed. And what has changed was many, many people on social media were sharing those body positivity messages. They were reading blog posts and sharing them to Facebook. They were sharing them to Twitter. They were putting those messages out in the world and influencing their friends with those messages. And so a core group of people, let's say a 25%, mm -hmm. were sharing these messages, which is starting to flip the room and flip the norm. And so that's how we do it. We share those messages and we change the culture around people. And that in turn changes their ideas. We have to even look at like 20 years ago, it seemed impossible that gay marriage could be legalized. And yet a core group of people flipped the room. They changed the culture around people. And now, in, at least in my world, it is completely socially unacceptable to be homophobic or to push back against gay marriage or gay rights in any way. And that has happened in a relatively short amount of time because a core group of people changed our minds about it. That changed the norm. And then the rest of the culture shifted the rest of the room. Mm -hmm. So that's how we're culture makers. Mm -hmm. We don't have to convince anyone, but if we're all sharing those messages and that new norm that we're trying to create, it flips the room and changes the norm. Yeah, I love, um, I love thinking about this in terms of kind of our little circle of people in our lives, you know, and that we don't need everyone to be flipped. You know, we just need <laughs> one out of four. Um, right. And I think we get a lot of questions from parents about how to influence their, their parents or their school, you know, all the people in their kids' lives. And I think it's helpful, really, really helpful to think about. It doesn't need to be everyone. It needs to be one in one in four. And I, often you are the one in four. Right. Mm -hmm. And as long as people hear that message from you, it starts adding up. 
I've even had this experience in my personal life where someone, two people, in fact, who pushed back very hard against me three years ago, two people who were friends of mine and sort of tried to do this intervention with me and said that I was too political and I'm too angry and I'm too this and I'm too that. And now are sharing messages that are very similar to mine on social media. And it's not that I influenced them, but I was one influence and a whole bunch of people around them were also that influence. And now, because the culture has shifted around them, their views have changed. Mm -hmm. It's an organic long game process. It's not an instant conversion, but it requires all of us being culture makers and sharing and doubling down on the norms we want to create. Yeah, I think that's a really important point and one that's hard for for parents sometimes to hold is it is a long view. You know, we have to be patient and our children may not flip for a while um, and our, our kids' friends may not and our friends may not. But as long as we can stay that one person um, out of the four, we will hopefully see a change over time. But it's, it is a long game. I think that's sometimes hard for parents to be patient with. It's hard for friends to be patient yeah. with too, right? Like it was enormously painful when two of my friends, you know, tried to check me. Yeah. It was enormously painful, but I didn't like unfriend them or cut them out of my life. I just kept doing what I was going to do. I'm still going to share messages around Black Lives Matter, even if it makes them uncomfortable, especially because it makes them uncomfortable. <laughs> and I am going to shift them mm-hmm. across time in community with everyone else putting out that message as well. Yeah, it's interesting just to, to think about recently, there's been at least, I guess, over the course of the year that I've noticed, there's been more conversation about health at every size in the New York Times. And, you know, it's been Christy Harrison, it's been Virginia Sol Smith, it's it's these little articles that are starting to, I'm just starting to see. And it's right. so nice to see, you know, and one of my one of my mom friends recently reached out to me and was like, Hey, what do you think about this? I don't know what to think about this because she has been a listener on the podcast and has um, we've had lots of conversations about health at every size and weight stigma and fat phobia. And she has a lot of, of a lot of friends who are becoming people she's trying to influence. And it was just really nice to have her notice that, to have her think about it, to have her, you know, try to figure out how to how to push back. And I'm wondering, are you no, are you noticing that too? Are you noticing that the conversation about fat phobia, weight stigma is growing. Yes, I am noticing that. It is going to come with pushback, but it is growing and it is now moving into the mainstream. And even I want to talk about how influence and power work and come back to this as culture makers. Yeah. The reason, for example, that Christy Harrison can get in the New York Times and get that op-ed isn't because the New York Times is doing any righteous favor to her right? It's because she built her own power base. She has a large audience. Mm -hmm. So if she goes and writes for the New York times, she is bringing that audience with her. Mm -hmm. And so this is something to think about as a culture maker is that if you want to influence the mainstream, you don't go begging to publications or, or editors and think that anyone's doing you a favor. You build your own power base and your own audience, and then they have to bring you on because you're delivering what they're looking for right? Like you can be your own power source here. Yeah. And I guess that's important to teach our kids as well. 
Right. And so that's why I think it's so important to teach our girls and teach all of our children that it's actually a really powerful thing to do things on your own terms, to say, you know what, this is what I believe in. These are the messages I'm going to share out in the world. These are the people I'm going to follow and be influenced by and build your community and your audience and your allies. And then the mainstream will move that like, that's just the nature of the way our culture develops. Now that doesn't mean it necessarily moves towards justice because there's people on the other side also trying to do that. Right. But like we actually get to determine what direction it moves in. So what do we want to live in? How do you manage the pushback? Because I think that's one thing that, um, that I'm noticing a lot of parents having trouble with is becoming influenced, but then experiencing a, a pushback and, and having trouble with that. So I'm curious if you have any recommendations on that. So are they receiving the pushback from their children or pushback from other people in their lives? Uh, mostly other people from their lives. I think that maybe there's two answers if you want to shoot for two answers when it's from sure. your children and it's when it's from other adults. So I usually interpret pushback or shaming because often that's what the pushback comes with is like you're doing something wrong right? And you ought to be ashamed of that thing that you're doing wrong. I usually interpret that as an indication that there is a source of power here that some people don't want you to use, not because they're malicious, but because it will challenge their identities and norms that they're comfortable with and even biases that they're comfortable with. And so I usually interpret as like, oh, well, I'm really onto something. (laughs) I'm experiencing pushback Because I am growing in power and it threatens other people's identities, which then threatens our belonging. So I've had that experience where as I grew in power on social media, people in my lives, my aunts even, would come on my social media page and try to discipline me in front of my community members, Mm. right? So I have definitely experienced this pushback and it's usually because they're interpreting signs of power that threaten the power dynamic between you. So the elders in my family are going to discipline me in front of my community on Facebook because they're seeing me grow in power, which means I might have to be held as an elder in our family, right? So whenever people are pushing back, I'm usually thinking they're seeing signs of power in me. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I need to double down on it. And there's a way in which I don't take it personally. So I don't think that person is nefarious and evil and trying to do me harm, nor am I nefarious and evil and trying to do them harm. Mm. But we're, we're acting out of these subconscious power scripts. And that is, again, if you raise it to the level of consciousness, now you kind of break the spell. So I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing, auntie. Mm -hmm. And here's what's going on. And I love you anyway. And I'm not going to stop. And that's even what I did with my friends who like tried to intervene and said I was too politically angry. I was like, I see how you feel about this and I'm not going to stop. You're allowed to have whatever feelings you want to have about it. And I'm not going to stop. So what it is, is you really have to be certain of what you want to do and who you are and what you stand for. And yes, people are going to push back and yes, it's going to hurt. And it is even going to cost you some relationships, but this is what you're about. And if the only way to preserve those relationships is to be someone else, that's not an acceptable price, right? That's the price of your soul. Right. So maybe there's a discernment piece of like, 
what's the cost of my integrity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what am I willing to pay? Yeah. And I I mean, I think we as women, unfortunately, don't ask ourselves that question enough. I mean, that's what we've been conditioned to be nice and play along. And that's a survival skill, right? right? But we are allowed to self-define and it is okay not to be nice and not to be likable. It's better to be yourself. It costs too much to be anything else. Right. Right. So that's the one thing. And then the piece about if your children are pushing back, let's say your teenage children are pushing back. I even don't take that, that personally, because that actually means you're winning at life as a parent. If your child is trying to individuate Mm -hmm. and be something other than who you are. Now it would enormously pain me if my daughter suddenly wanted to pose in a bikini on Instagram and be a Republican. Like that would genuinely upset me (laughs) and (laughs) feel antithetical. And I could step back and zoom out and hold the view that she's trying to individuate herself sometimes against me. Right. And this will be temporary. I certainly did that with my parents and it's a temporary thing and it passes around 25. (laughs) (laughs) So hold on. (laughs) Yeah, just, yeah, exactly. Don't take it personally, even though it's seriously irritating, right? I have a son who's 24, right? And so we've gone through this and now it's cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's leave it with a question we like to ask all of our guests, which is if each parent listening to this podcast and you um, took away and did just one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? So I would completely regularly, multiple times a day, remind them of how hard they're trying, how smart they are, how worthy they are, independent of any of those things. Like just, they are sacred and precious and deserving because they exist. Because that is counter to all the negative messages they're going to get, right? So you literally can't say that enough to them. And the other thing is to keep the conversation open and observe power dynamics. So if you're watching a movie and a man is gaslighting a woman, then say like, oh my goodness, that's gaslighting. We do this with 90 day fiance, my daughters and I all the time. Like, well, that was some serious gaslighting, wasn't it? So like observe the power dynamics and talk about them and say like, wow, that was racist. Wow. That was a microaggression. Have those conversations with your kids. They're really capable of them. My eight year old is super fluent in the language of justice. So just keep talking to them about it. I just wanted to say like, that's a power move, like equipping them to see power dynamics allows them to navigate it without being broken by it yeah yeah allows them to kind of like you said break the spell right yeah I thank love that. you thank you so much thank you so so much So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the podcast. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm